And welcome back to Dads on the Air, coming to you around Australia on the Community Radio Network. In this program, we bring you informing and entertaining conversations with a wide range of interesting people on topics of fatherhood, men's and boys' issues. Hi, I'm Bill Cable, and with me in the studio today is Ken Thompson. And our special guest today is Edward Crook. Edward is the Associate Professor of Social Work at the University of British Columbia, specialising in child and family policy and author of numerous publications, including his latest book, The Equal Parent Presumption, Social Justice in the Legal Determination of Parenting After Divorce. So, Ed, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be on air with you. So, Ed, uh, you say that this is not a book from a father's rights group. What did provide the impetus for writing the book? You know, I've had a long career of working with children and families, and my work has always proceeded from a child-focused perspective. So it's really the best interests of children that guide me in my work. And I've come to see over the years that the best interests of children are inextricably linked with the, the needs and interests of their parents as well. So, but sometimes they are distinct. Yeah, I, I think many fathers' groups, of course, have advanced the idea of shared or equal parenting as in their interests, but more importantly, I see it as a, as a child rights or even more a responsibility that we have to children to ensure that their relationships with both their parents are protected and that, that they get the best possible outcome in you know, difficult situations like family transition attendant to divorce. So, yeah, I'm really proceeding from the perspective of children. And that's a something of a revolutionary approach because people mouth the expression on oh, in the best interests of the child. But in your book, you actually look at it from the child's perspective instead of a judge deciding what is in the best interests of the child. And I think that's the interesting part for me. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting because researchers told us that most of what we consider to be, quote, in the best interests of the child is really based on adult perspectives. Uh, often expert perspectives on what's best for children. But strangely, children have, haven't been consulted as to what their best interests are until very recently. And uh, now we have research that has looked at this idea of the best interests of, of children, what are children's primary needs in times like divorce. And uh, we've looked at the perspective of experts like judges and mediators, lawyers, psychologists and mental health professionals on the one hand. We've looked at it from the perspective of parents. And also now, more recently, we've, there is research that has been begun to ask children themselves what they consider to be their best interests. And um, the, these viewpoints markedly diverge, not so much parents and children, but judges, for example, um, when they talk about the best interests of children, they seem to be most preoccupied with determining uh, which parent has the most deficits or mm. which parent is the most suited to be the parent. Really, you know, judges aren't trained in child development and family dynamics, so, so really they have very little expertise in this area. But when you ask children themselves, they have very differing views. Now, there was a groundbreaking landmark study from Arizona a few years ago that asked um, about 800 to 900 young adult children of divorce who had lived through their parents' divorce uh, as children what they considered to be 
most important to their well-being. And they very clearly identified the the importance of maintaining meaningful relationships with each of their parents as in their best interest. They equated the best children's best interests with shared parenting, essentially, where they had as much time as possible with each of their parents and, uh, and as equal a proportion of time as possible with each of their parents so they could get the best from both parents. I use the term the best interest of the child from the perspective of the child. I think we need to go beyond beyond judicial biases and stereotypes and what perhaps parents uh, who are at high conflict with, with each other over what's best for children, we need to go beyond those perspectives and really look at what the research is that's focused on children's views on their best interests and their fundamental needs has told us. Yes, what I particularly like in your book is the way you're prepared to challenge assumptions and even some expressions like you say a judge is not really awarding custody they are really sanctioning removal from one of the parents and when you look at it from the child's perspective that's really what's happening isn't it yes a child is essentially losing the day-to-day care of one parent when judges apply a primary caregiver presumption or a bias that children are better off in high-conflict situations uh, in, in the primary care of only one parent. And that's absolutely true. We talk about awarding custody, but nothing could be further from the truth. Essentially, judges are removing a parent from the life of a child, and, it's, and that's particularly devastating. We often talk about this idea of awarding custody or that uh, parents are the ones who, you know, perhaps fathers lose out. But in fact, it's the child who's, uh, who suffers the most uh, from that loss. So I think, yeah, we have to be honest about that and, uh, and realize this is contrary to children's rights. The non-discrimination clause, for example, Article 2 of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which uh, states very clearly that we should not be discriminating against different groups of children on the basis, for example, of parental status. We apply this indeterminate best interest standard, which is really um, a discretionary-based standard. It's, uh, you know, uh, really up to the judge to determine what the best interest of the child. They apply their own um, idiosyncratic biases Mm. and end up, you know, in in most cases, uh, removing a parent from the day-to-day routine caregiving uh, responsibility. That's another point I'd make, is that we, we talk too much about rights. Uh, whether that's parents' rights or children's rights, we don't talk enough about responsibilities and the responsibilities that we collectively have, both parents and representatives of social institutions like judges, to ensure that, that children's needs are addressed. Children's needs and their fundamental needs seem to get lost in the whole discourse around uh, mother's rights versus father's rights this whole rights-based discourse. We kind of, the more we talk about rights, the, the less we seem to be concerned about responsibilities. And it is the responsibility of social institutions, such as the courts, to support parents in the fulfillment of their parenting responsibilities to their children's needs. We don't really hold these institutions or representatives of these institutions, whether it's social welfare or education or the medical system or or the courts, uh, we don't hold uh, folks accountable for their decisions. 
I think that's one of the biggest disappointments in this area is that uh, we people that don't have any experience with family law come to the court expecting a fair determination and uh, you find judges making these discretionary decisions with no expertise in the area which can affect people's lives. I think you know it's a, it's a fundamental principle in uh, in law that the best laws are those that limit judicial discretion, mm. especially in the family arena where judges have no training in the finer points of child development and family dynamics, a very kind of delicate matter. Um, they kind of impose their biases, essentially, which uh, more often than not uh, turn out to be assumptions that really have no foundation. And we're speaking with Edward Crook, Associate Professor of Social Work at the University of British Columbia. We're going to take a short break now and listen to a song about uh, an anguished statement dealing with the pain of separation. This is a song called Stay by Lorraine Ellison. by Lorraine Ellison and we're speaking today with Edward Crook, Associate Professor of Social Work at the University of British Columbia about his most recent book, The Equal Parent Presumption, Social Justice in the Legal Determination of Parenting After Divorce. Ed, we were just uh, talking about the uh, the effect of the judges in and the courts. People will often raise the situation of what should happen when there's high parental conflict. What do your studies show about about equal shared time when there is this high parental conflict? Well, there's probably been more research done on this question than any other in the past five years particularly. Now, some years ago, it was found that children moving back and forth between parents in situations of, of high conflict was uh, problematic for children. Uh, but it turned out that those studies were not measuring so much the amount of time that children spent in each parent's uh, household. They were more uh, focused on the number of alternations. So if uh, children are moving back and forth frequently and exposed to parental conflict during these transitions, then that's going to have a negative impact. But more recently, we've actually looked at the, uh, the impact of differing custodial or residential arrangements on children. And... Um, the results are extremely encouraging as far as shared parenting is concerned. 
first of all, um, in situations of high conflict, I'm not talking about situations of family violence, but rather conflict, where uh, perhaps children have been exposed to conflict for an extended period of time with the marital discord in, in the family and then during the separation. We found that over time, with shared parenting, conflict decreases because neither parent is threatened with the loss of their child. They have really kind of considering shared parenting as as an arrangement uh, in which neither of them is going to lose contact uh, with their children or become alienated from their children. As the dust settles over time, conflict is reduced in shared parenting situations. However, where one parent is the primary caregiver, especially in situations where the care was shared in the two-parent family, uh, that's a recipe for disaster. The conflict escalates as uh, one parent tries to get more time with the, with the child while the other is trying to limit uh, the child's contact with, that, with the non-residential parent. These conflicts and litigation uh, around uh, access time can go on for years. Uh, and so in those cases, uh, conflict markedly uh, increases over time. So um, we have a really you know, solid body of research now that tells us that um, shared parenting is associated with decreases in conflict levels. The other interesting point is that um, fully 50% of first-time uh, family violence situations occur during and after divorce, parental separation, uh, in the context of adversarial, winner-take-all uh, battles over who will get the primary responsibility or primary residence of children. Where there was no violence in the past, a large proportion of first-time violence occurs uh, within that context of an adversarial battle, uh, both parents wanting uh, the children to be with them as much as possible and really feeling threatened, each of them feeling threatened, that they may lose that court battle and uh, be denied kind of a routine involvement within their children's lives. So uh, there's quite a bit from um, all over the world, really, uh, and um, I think the conclusion now is that high conflict should never be a reason for limiting a child's contact uh, with either of the parents. We also know um, that in high conflict situations, what is really most dangerous for uh, children is the fact that they are uh, liable to lose contact with one parent, and that's more devastating than than just simply the exposure to conflict. Shared parenting provides a buffer or, or kind of reduces the impact of high conflict for children. It's clearly what's most important to children from their own perspective, but also looking at um, adults, both parents' adjustment to the consequences of divorce, we see conflict going down with shared parenting and going up with, with the kind of traditional primary residence model. And you would draw the distinction between conflict between the parents themselves and then uh, violence, say, with towards the child. And I, it, it doesn't necessarily follow that if the parents are in conflict with each other that one parent's going to be violent towards the, the child. Exactly. In fact, uh, family violence is a reality. And I think uh, in cases of, uh, where it's established and substantiated that violence and, uh, has occurred, uh, spousal uh, by um, interparental violence, 
that is a form of child abuse that has uh, devastating consequences for children. And uh, in those cases, most researchers, practitioners would uh, call for a rebuttable presumption against shared parenting in mm. substantiated cases of violence. After all, it is a form of child abuse, uh, just exposure to parental conflict or, or, or violence between parents, rather, not, not so much conflict. It's very important to distinguish among different levels of conflict and violence. At the extreme end is family violence, and uh, in many of those cases, of course, with safety measures in place and supports in place for both parents uh, and children, um, over time, uh, shared parenting uh, might be the, the best outcome. But you have to proceed very carefully, uh, as you would in, in a two, with a two-parent family where there's uh, mm. family violence. Uh, we don't want children exposed to that. Really, these are um, a relatively small percentage of uh, cases of divorce. The vast majority involve some degree of parental conflict, but not violence. And, uh, and as I say, over time, conflict is reduced. Whereas in the other, with shared parenting, whereas with the other, the other situation of primary residence with one parent and the other one effectively cast in the role of visitor and avuncular relationship where their previous relationship with their children, the, the post-divorce relationship bears no resemblance to the previous relationship. Uh, we know that those cases, violence, or rather, uh, conflict escalates sometimes to the point of violence, and we want to prevent those situations from occurring. Well, interestingly, with the favouritism given to sole custody awards, uh, I think your study would show that uh, sole custody is correlated with uh, with parental alienation and uh, and violence, as we've just been talking about. We're going down the wrong path in pursuing this sole custody uh, award. Absolutely. Yes. We've seen in, first in the research and the practitioner community, particularly among mental health practitioners, uh, a paradigm shift occurring away from the notion that um, children are best served in, you know, kind of one stable relationship with one parent to, um, to recognizing that shared parenting is, and, and both parents uh, actively involved in children's lives is absolutely fundamental for children's adjustment to divorce at all ages uh, uh, and stages of development of children. But now we're also seeing uh, jurisdictions around the world uh, embracing shared parenting as the foundation for family law. And uh, that's uh, something to be really um, optimistic about. Mm -hmm. uh, for many years now, we've seen um, sort of a gender convergence, I would call it, um, in child care roles and responsibilities in two-parent families. And we really encourage that idea that both parents are now working outside the home in most families and that really both parents have to share the responsibility for child rearing and they are doing that uh, in two-parent families, in many cases fairly equally. Uh, so we really encourage that notion that we or promote the idea of shared parenting in two-parent families. But after separation and divorce, we seem to kind of lose our... Uh, you know, our focus a little bit, and uh, there's less uh, of an emphasis on the importance of shared parenting. Mm. So that's something to be addressed as well. 
but it, but it is being addressed. Um, the Council of Europe recently passed a resolution that urged member states to adopt shared parenting as the foundation of family law, and uh, we're seeing any number of European jurisdictions moving in that direction, and uh, many states in the U.S. as well. Um, but some countries are still lagging behind. And some people might say that uh, equal shared parenting breaks down over time. Is that your study? Like they say, oh, after a while, the child will naturally go back to the mother. Absolutely no evidence of that that I've been able to find. Uh, I've I've definitely heard that argument. But uh, clearly, uh, as children uh, get older, uh, they want more of a say in um, their routines and their relationships. And, of course, they... Uh, focus for teenagers is, you know, achieving independence from both parents, and uh, they they uh, they like to have more of a say in uh, their living arrangements. However, um, based on the research that's looked at children children's perspectives directly, um, they want some form of shared parenting um, all the way through, right from very young children to older children. So although the actual residential arrangements, uh, the specifics of those residential arrangements will will change over time, and um, and of course even in high-conflict situations where perhaps parents start off in more of a parallel parenting mode, uh, over time as the dust settles and conflict um, diminishes, then, uh, you know, parents themselves become a little bit more cooperative and flexible in terms of uh, making accommodations and respecting each other's parenting. And um, and so, you know, the, the shared parenting arrangement that people start off with right after divorce does change over time. There's no question about that. But it's not a matter of suddenly kids wanting to be in the exclusive care of one parent only. That happens in some cases, but, uh, but really most important for children, according, you know, to the studies that have asked children themselves, is that they want as equal as possible a relationship with both parents. They really value both parents uh, in most cases uh, equally and and want to maintain those primary attachments with both parents. Your suggested way of dealing with this area is to have two presumptions and which would seem to satisfy the critics as well. One presumption would be, of course, equal shared parenting time. And the other presumption would be that if there is violence proven in another court, a criminal court, custody would go to the non-offending parent. And that seems an eminently sensible way. At least for a period of time. I think the primary concern in the second scenario you described is the safety of the child. And we need to, above all, you know, establish that as safety for children before we can really um, examine, you know... Whatever arrangement, you know, keeps children shielded from violence, uh, that's really the key. But that's not to say that uh, that's a, it'll remain like that forever. Um, I think if uh, parents are able to get support and help and work through that kind of um, pattern of violence, then um, just as in two-parent families where we see abusive parents, they're gradually reintegrated into the child's life and parents are taught sort of nonviolent conflict resolution and more effective parenting methods. So my, my position is that we should apply the same standard to children of divorce as we do 
to children in two-parent families. And clearly, where children are exposed to violence in a two-parent family or to child abuse, then we intervene and, um, and act to ensure that the child is safe and not exposed to violence or abuse. And the same should pertain uh, to um, the post-divorce situation. So that means that uh, an allegation of, of abuse is not enough. It really has to be substantiated because uh, mutual allegations are fairly uh, common within the adversarial system where, where they are investigated. Some of these allegations, they're found not to be substantiated uh, in many cases. So only um, after a fairly um, thorough and immediate um, child welfare assessment do we make those uh, decisions we've uh, reached the stage of the show we're going to have uh, another musical break i happen to know that our guest uh, edward crook is the uh, is a dj on the raven on tree frog radio but uh, i'm going to pick a song that i hope he'll uh, approve it's called golden by jill scott Golden by Jill Scott, and it just remains for me now to thank our special guest today, Edward Crook, Associate Professor of Social Work at the University of British Columbia. Ed, thank you very much for being on the program. It's been a pleasure, Bill. Nice talking to you. Don't forget, we'd love to hear from any of our listeners. You can go to our website, dadsontheair.com.au, and send us an email, and we'll be in touch. If you'd like to listen to this show again or any of our shows, go to our website, dadsontheair.com.au, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And so that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with another show on Dads on the Air.